that's essentially the power of data science. Basically highlighting the truth of things. Being able to recognize a human being living in a complex, concrete, multidimensional society. And within that, pinpointing what sort of treatments work best and spending our time and effort on those. The more we know, the more we can do with the dollar that we get from the taxpayer. And that's basically what makes this field so exciting. On October 25th, we're coming back to Melbourne for our first physical MLOps event. Whether you are just starting in the MLOps journey, improving in that space, or whether you have thousands of models in production, this event is for you. The type of things we're going to cover is MLOps for scale. And that scale can be number of models or the number of people in the team or the number of prediction and inferences that need to be made in an hour or a minute or a second. So how to create effective MLOps for all those scenarios. We're going to cover MLOps processes and team structures. How do we organize ourselves and the talent that we have in our organizations for better results in MLOps. We're going to be looking at creating efficient and effective MLOps pipelines in an end-to-end. What does the data look like, the feature stores, all the way to the model deployment, serving, monitoring, alerting, etc. We're also going to cover getting a C-level buy-in and support for the investment in this area. We're going to be covering what governance and good management looks like in this space. So wherever you are in your journey, the MLOps event in Melbourne on October 25th is going to help you increase the maturity of MLOps in your organization. I hope you can join us. See you then. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers, and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project-focused data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with, whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. Thanks for joining us today. This is Felipe Flores. Today, we're going to be discussing all things healthcare and data analytics. It's going to be a really great episode. We have a super special guest today. It's Dr. Yalchim Oitam. He is the head of clinical insights and analytics at the Southeastern Sydney Local Health District. Yalchim, thank you so much for making the time. How are you going today? Thank you, Felipe. I'm going well. Mate, I'm very, very excited to speak to you, to pick your brain, to understand better all things data analytics in healthcare. But I was thinking, could you start us off by telling us about your remit and your role at the moment? Yes, I am, the, as you said, the Head of Clinical Insights and Analytics at Southeastern Sydney Local Health District, which nominally has a population of around a million, and it's one of the major metropolitan local health districts within New South Wales. So... We look after all things data from all the way from data curation to warehousing of data to generating and and to the pointy end of where we generate insights from data such that we can improve the health and well-being of our sort of population. Mm -hmm. Essentially understanding 
uh, an individual's um, journey from birth to death, understanding the emerging health risks, uh, utilizing data science, and providing an opportunity at every point for the best, most optimal intervention to be provided to the person such that we, you know, prolong life, but also the quality of life and, you know, the, the productive life. So that essentially is what we do. That's the, the big picture of, you know, why we go through the dramas that we do every day. Amazing. No, thank you. And for, for the people that don't know the uh, Australian health system well enough, um, how would you describe the, the role of the local health district? Excellent question. So first of all, we are fortunate enough to have a um, well-funded and a public health system. Um, essentially, our health system is divided into two. There is one group, there's the, the primary health, and that's your GPs, uh, sort of community health, um, you know, the, the, the general practitioners that you go to. And then uh, the secondary health, as we call it, is other hospitals. So that's where, you know, clearly that's where you get uh, serious um, uh, uh, medical service, medical attention if required. So local health districts in New South Wales. So before I go to that, uh, primary health in Australia is managed by the federal government. Secondary health uh, is managed by the states. Um, we'll probably talk about that later on. It does pose challenges that we that we need to overcome, but nevertheless, that's the um, that's the the governance structure. Now within New South Wales. Um, the hospital system, the secondary health, is subdivided into local health districts. There's about 17 of them across the state. So essentially, a, a each uh, health district is a particular geographical area within the state, and within it, it has certain major facilities. So it's, uh, and then the, the district looks after the population and the, the major facilities within it. Now, in, in addition to the local health districts, we have specialty networks like children's hospitals networks. So they're, so they're sort of distributed. They're not geographically sort of localized, but they focus, they, they provide a specialty and enhance the name. So that's the sort of the combination. It's, it's essentially a, um, a hybrid model um, of health management. You don't have sort of a whole bunch of independent hospitals, but you also don't have one sort of integrated system. It's sort of a... Um, and a rather optimal trade-off between the two. Yeah, really nice, really nice. So you guys would um, work very closely with the with the public hospitals in the in the LHD zone. Um, yes. So those would essentially fall fall under the the LHD. So that's the. I'm just thinking about the um, type of type of data that you guys would would have access to to look after the um, the population, the health of the of the population. Uh, besides the hospital data, what what other type of um, data can would you have access to um, for that? Very good question. So uh, let me say, so we collect data from our own uh, facilities that we directly manage. Um, uh, it's not just hospital. We, we get them from ED departments. We, we get them from sort of uh, admitted services when people are admitted into hospital when they make presentations to ED. But we also get them from um, sort of community health centers. Mm -hmm. uh, from uh, sort of uh, non-admitted services, as we call them. Uh, uh, you know, when you go to a hospital and, you, you know, you see a medical officer or a specialist, you don't have to be admitted into the hospital for us to collect data. Now, in our line of work, 
we don't just rely on the data that we collect locally. Mm-hmm. Um, we also look at the data across the entire state because although we have a nominal group of people that we look after in the geography, as you know, people are free to go to any facility. So if we didn't collect data across the state, it would mean that we'd have gaps in our data relating to the patient. So that would be a problem. So we also collect that. Um, of course, as we move out of our um, district, uh, there might be the, the level of detail that we collect might be less, um, but nevertheless, we collect it across. And what we are trying to do more recently is, um, as you can imagine, so-called link data is very important, mm. where we look at an individual patient and we link their data from the hospital systems, but also from primary um, uh, health, from, from GPs. Also, collecting information about their socioeconomics is very important. So we collect it um, by linking these uh, multiple dimensions of information about a, a person. We create the conditions where we can treat the person as a concrete being in a living society rather than just a set of medical problems. And that, as we'll probably discuss later on, that is where the the massive step forward is. That really is the, um, if you like, the the next sort of scientific revolution, if you like, by looking at a, a patient and treating that patient as a person with all the dimensions that they've got, living in a in a society with all the heterogeneity that there is, all the socioeconomic factors, educational. Um, so we understand the, the person, you know, concretely, therefore we can uh, provide um, medical interventions that are suited and tailored to them rather than just assuming this sort of um, idealized patient. So that that is where we are at. That's amazing. That's amazing because with without without link data, it's very uh, or it would be very easy to fall into um, looking at people as one disease or a small collection of diseases right. at, at yeah. one particular point to say yeah. they might have these two or three chronic conditions or you know yeah. they might just have one kind of isolated thing. Yes, but being able to link the data gives you a perspective of. Of a person, of a human, um, yes. of everything that they have. So absolutely, yeah. that's it, Felipe. So, and by doing that, we're actually addressing a probably what is it, what has been a weakness in modern medicine. Um, you know, uh, me- modern medicine has been able to do wonders, but as part of its evolution, it has become specialized, mm-hmm. and that's so. If you have got a particular, so they become very good at doing surgery that would have been impossible thirty years ago. So outcomes have improved significantly. But um, so that success has has come um, with over specialization, if, if you like. Yeah. So we need to kind of balance that by integrating all and seeing the person behind the, the presentations. And that's essentially what we're doing. You know, that's that's and, and it is it is quite powerful. So just to on that note, now that we mentioned yes. it, um uh, we have been very active in this field. So we have been linking primary and secondary care, and we're looking at sort of, you know, the whole of patient and all of with, with the, the most complete information that we can get, you know, we can we can construct. So to give you one example, the, the significance of this, if you like, um, we looked at people with diabetes. Mm-hmm. And um, what we could, uh, what we found out was that you could have two individuals with diabetes, identical pretty much in every way, 
other than the fact that, for one, we can identify a GP who knows their proclivities, and for the other, we can't identify a GP. And this is working with a naturally limited data. And if we can't identify a GP, it doesn't mean they don't have one. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, this is the situation. And in this situation, what we found was that the person with a GP that says, yes, I know this guy has got diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, that, that patient was up to 70% less likely to have an unplanned hospital admission in the next 12 months. Compared to the other guy, completely equivalent, one difference is we can't find a GP to say, yes, I know that guy has got diabetes. And wow. the, the real-life difference could be even bigger because we don't have a complete set of GPs. Mm-hmm. It is possible that uh, the patient we're looking at that we can't find a GP for may have a GP. Mm-hmm. So you can ima- So this is just, you know, so that 70% reduction, yeah. that's a massive reduction in risk. And we can do this by just, you know, bringing all the data and understanding the impact of primary care. Now, um, if I was to uh, create a new drug that would reduce the patient's hospitalization risk by 70%, that drug would be worth billions of dollars on the market, you know? Exactly. And yet here it is, just by looking at what, what is possible in primary health, we can quantify the benefit of it. And when you know, you can allocate funds accordingly. Um, so society wins when you do that. And that's essentially the power of data science basically highlighting the truth of things, being able to recognize a human being living in a complex, concrete, multidimensional society, and within that, pinpointing what sort of treatments work best and spending our time and effort on those. The more we know, the more we can do with the dollar that we get from the taxpayer. And that's basically what makes this field so exciting. It is not just exciting from a scientific perspective, and really, you know, you know how exciting that is. Um, whatever science you know, you can throw at it. So it's quite exciting from that. But also the, the empowerment that you get, you get that the, um, the, the scope of positive things that you can do that it allows you makes it quite um, appealing. That's, yeah. that's amazing. That's amazing. That's, um, that's definitely the, the type of world that, you know, that I and that everyone wants to live in uh, a world where it's it, the, we have a better, better connected healthcare system yeah. where we're getting the benefits of, of data science off the back of that. Um, and in this case, it sounded like part of the focus was um, ways that we can identify uh, preventative healthcare um, options that have then a, a repercussion or improvements in the secondary and tertiary Healthcare settings? Yeah. Um, well said. Well put. So that, that is definitely one mode that we can get benefit from. Um, typically, spending money on, on, on the citizens, if you like, mm-hmm. in terms of improved primary care, uh, will save an order of magnitude more in secondary care, in avoided secondary care. And it, um, but it's not just that. You know, it's not just about keeping people out of hospitals. Mm. When you keep people out of hospital, it also means that they're generally healthier. Mm. Healthier people are more productive, healthy, you know, in every way, culturally, economically. Um, so they are happier. They're, so that, so um, uh, in human terms, the benefit of this goes beyond money saved in hospitals. Mm. You know, it comes back to us in, 
you know, better productivity, um, sort of uh, higher quality of life, and 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 you know, and a happier society. So you know, that is um, so. Data science and us doing this basically um, uh, operates in that sort of domain. Yeah, mm, yeah, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. That's great. And the yeah, the 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 power um, of of having that um, that data and those capabilities in you know in in, in a sort of in, in a team that can look after people in this way is is amazing. Um, and and then how do you how do you prioritize the um, either the work or or the or the initiatives um, that you that you guys would tackle with the analytics and the insights. Um, and, and I'm asking, sort of thinking about some of the um, chronic conditions, for example, that uh, are that are prevalent uh, in society. Maybe in Australia, um, there's there's obviously yeah a, a lot of talk about rising, for example, rising mental health. Um, yes. There's a lot of, a lot of um, yeah. issues yeah related to yeah. um to right. example, weight and things like that. What yeah what what do you, how do you guys choose what to what to tackle? <laughs> That's a very insightful question. So um um right uh, with chronic chronic disease is a major problem in the world. It's a major problem in the sort of probably more so in the developed world and in Australia, and it's quite costly. So that has been one of the things that we have been attending to. So we have got integrated care and preventative uh, health in order to minimize the impact of chronic disease. So we have done, um, so that has been, that's a, that's a key priority. And in fact, we have done a lot of work in that. So my team, um, uh, especially where we were previously in our previous role, uh, um, we kind of, we basically did an evaluation, a major evaluation, looking at uh, multiple integrated care interventions addressing chronic disease. Mm -hmm. So um, there was a lot of money spent on this by New South Wales Health, around 180 billion dollars over a five-year period. Um, clinicians were basically given a lot of freedom to choose how best to treat their population. So it was almost like um, um, uh, how do I put it? It was <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say experimental because it wasn't experimental, yeah. but you get to test out the big ideas in yes. integrated care. Yes, you know, so that data was absolutely invaluable. So we got we got the job of doing an evaluation on that data to find out uh, whether the intervention works and if it works for whom does it work, and how do we um, make sure that we get the right uh, treatment to the right person. Yeah, so. Um, we ended up using some advanced statistics, um, propensity score matching techniques, essentially, to to basically, because when you're doing it, the challenge with doing an evaluation like this is that you don't have a control group. You're not in the lab. You're not, it's not a clinical experiment. So if you don't have your controls, how do you know whether your intervention worked or not? So we used advanced statistics and the data that we had to create a synthetic control cohort. So we did this by saying, all right, Here's a, these are the people that we are treating. Um, so we found a, um, a scientific or mathematical um, descriptions of the population that we treat. So what makes this group distinct from the rest of the population? So we define that with a, using um, you know statistical means, and we apply that. Once we understand what makes them distinct, then we go into the general population 
and we find people that are just as distinct as the patients that we treat. So essentially, they're equivalent to our patients. And then we can see whether the study worked or not. And uh, we have done that, and we have identified what works for what sort of patient. Um, and um, on the one hand, we knew what interventions work. So if an intervention works in one part of the state, you generalize it to the whole state, and everybody benefits. But secondly, we also found out, you know, what type of patient do they work for? Because sometimes they work for this patient or that. So we could quantify the patient that they work for in advance. So that means that we send the patient's interest into an intervention um, when we already know that they're going to benefit from it. So that's a massive benefit to the patient, but it's also a massive benefit to the, the treasury because we know that we're going to get a return on every dollar that we spend. So that's another big thing. In the process of doing this work, we managed to build risk factors for people. Yeah. So one of the big ones that we built was the risk of hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So looking at people's his diagnoses, history of presentations, history of hospitalization, and last but not least, unfortunately, their socioeconomic status, yeah. and that makes a huge difference. Um, we could define an individual's risk of ending up in hospital in the next 12 months with an unplanned admission. We validated this task, and we compared it to what... Um, what happens overseas, and um, it was about 50% more accurate than an overseas model that the, the, the ministry was trying to bring into, um, you know, the state at the time. Wow. Right? So we implemented this, and this um, risk of hospitalization proved extremely useful, not only in integrated care that I mentioned, but when something really bizarre and unexpected happened, we now call it COVID-19. So when that happened, this score that we had built was the single best predictor of who was going to end up in hospital mm. and who was going to end up in ICU um, if they got the disease. So this um, insight that we built proved absolutely um, critical in our sort of management on, on COVID. So when, you know, for example, when news started coming out of China that it was an issue and people were ending up in hospital, we were able to understand how many people we're going to get from each postcode in hospital mm -hmm. if this thing um, ran rampant in society. So on the basis of that, we could quickly, within a week, we could calculate the number of ICU beds we needed, the number of hospital beds we needed. And we realized that we had no way near capacity. Long before, you know, at the time, people were still talking about, you know, oh, let's go for herd immunity, this and that. We knew that we would be um, steamrolled if we let that happen. So that early knowledge in quantified um, uh, statistical uh, uh, form, not in the form of opinions, could then be presented to the government. And of course, we did do that. And the government did take the right action. And we ended up being one of the sort of best states and best countries in the world in terms of managing COVID. And we played a part in that and in this work. Um, a piece of work that we did for um, managing chronic disease ended up being uh, absolutely crucial in this unexpected um, global pandemic. Maybe the virologists would disagree with us if I call it unexpected too much. But anyway, from from our perspective, you know, we're minding our own business, we're living our lives, and then yeah. this happened. Exactly. That's that's amazing. That's amazing that the the the, the work you know was so valuable, sort of before COVID, and then. Yes. 
even more so uh, yes. during during COVID. And um, yeah, the the um, the prediction and the the targeting of areas that needed to be, um, you know, um, uh, put into into a short lockdown. It was it was very well managed as a result of the information that was available, which obviously yeah. has been work that had been happening for such a such a long time. Yes. Um, so some of the some of the crucial uh, or critical pieces of the of the analytics work that that were standing out to uh, to me um, as you were talking is one is around the the matching uh, being yes. able to create that retrospective um, sort of control group yes and um, and then the other one is the 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 variables that were able to be uh, created to be fed into the model, which is like essentially tying into um, a person's record, their their health yes. history, um, yeah. and and having that information over time. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, about those those two components? Um, so, for example, in the matching, you said that uh, you you guys were using propensity score matching. Um, yeah. What was the, the the propensity that you were calculating uh, to? Uh, to match on, um, and then and then yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the the matching yeah. and a little bit about the the data uh, available? Yeah, sure. So with propensity, um, <laughs> um, quite often. So I'll give you an example. So yeah. um, let's say we there, there's a um, um, uh, let me just think of a, a, a an example. So there, there could have been a rapid access program. Mm -hmm. to treat diabetes mm -hmm. or treat heart disease or treat lung disease. And uh, you will talk to the clinician uh, uh, and you would want to say, you can tell, so what sort of patient do you bring in? What are the conditions? What, you know, how do you make that decision to enroll a patient? Mm -hmm. And of course, they had gone through all of that. They would give you their sheet of saying, these are the general rules. You know, if they're about this age or they've got this, these preconditions, if their presentation included these features, then we bring them in. And of course, I want my, you know, they would say my clinical intuition, if, if I, if they fall outside of those things, but I feel they'll benefit, I also put them in. So they give you this kind of uh, decision tree or the decision process that might have four or five um, parameters in it. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, okay, so if I do that, I'll probably get my propensity score. I'll, I'll be able to um, define this patient problem. What happens though? And this is the beauty when you actually look at the cohort from a data science perspective. So you've got um, eight, um, eight million people. You've got a data set of eight million people running back ten years, all de-identified, by the way. So not no one can be identified. There is the privacy issue that we maybe need to talk about later on. Um, so the question is, you ask yourself, I've got a, a, a population of eight million people. These clinicians treated about two thousand. What is so? What is unique about these two thousand people? What makes them separate from the eight million out there? Mm -hmm. So the first point that you start are the rules that the clinician gave you, but then you realize that there's a for basically every rule that they've got explicitly, implicitly there's another five or ten that makes yeah. this group. So that that is the beauty essentially of um, walking away from the the. The clinical space, space, the clinician's room, and bringing all the other factors into the equation. So one, usually one of the things that separate um, the cohort is socioeconomic status. You mm -hmm. find that for in a, I mean, it's not always, but in a particular cohort, you may find that it's a, it's a 
particular subset of social uh, uh, socioeconomic distribution, if you like, that filters into that program. Maybe it could be that people who come from really low socioeconomic areas are being are missing out, although they needed more. But or maybe some of the cultures are underrepresented. Mm. You see things like language sometimes being a barrier. Yeah. So what? So essentially, and here's the beauty of it: when you collect all these numbers, you're making um, so um, all of the unspoken. Uh, implicit features in our society, mm-hmm. whatever prejudices, whatever inequalities, whatever yes. disadvantage, anything that we don't necessarily know is captured, is, is now exposable. And the, the, um, the process that does the picking is actually blind to the prejudice of humans because it is a mathematical algorithm that does it. Mm-hmm. So the combination of the two is, is what makes it so powerful. Um, so the benefit of this process, again, is so it's actually is beyond health sciences. Yeah. It, it, it's in a way, it is a, an objective tool that sheds light on whatever sociocultural prejudices or socioeconomic disadvantages that may exist. And that's, the, that's why I say this is a revolution, potential revolution in health science, because it brings all of those things in, and in the in the and um, we pick out what works and where the gaps are with this whole picture in front of us. So that is, you know, that that's that aspect. Well, the, the, you asked me a second question, of course, which now escaped my mind. No, this is this is great. So, yeah. so one, yeah, one of them was around the the um, uh, the matching and ways to do the matching, and then the other one was around the the data available uh, that was used um, yeah. as part of the the model. Okay, that, so let's talk about the data issue. So, what I've described you, I mean, um, shows you how um, shows you all the power of the algorithms and modern mathematics and statistics that we can use, or modern AI, as they call it. And I think, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I think um, also for for a lot of people that may not work in, in health, um, they, they may not realize the the power of the social determinants of, of health, that essentially you're the, the, how, how correlated uh, socioeconomic uh, factors are with with health, so that was something that was standing out from what yes, you were saying. Absolutely, I've got a um, I, I've got a slide that makes the point. So uh, there's a slide uh, that shows um, the density or the the probability of hospitalization, or if you like, uh, the the number of hospitalizations per capita that we have per area. So it shows you the hospitalization risk, and next to that map, I can show you a map of the, the socioeconomic uh, advantage and disadvantage mm-hmm. of New South Wales, or Sydney in particular. Yeah. And if I show you the, the map of Sydney, one showing you where all the hospitalizations are, and versus the other one with all the socioeconomic, um, you know, showing the socioeconomic distribution, at first pass, you would struggle to see the difference. Yeah. It is the same basic shape. Mm-hmm. So socioeconomic advantage and disadvantage is an indirect but very large determinant of health status. Wow. So that really does bring it home. It really does show you that, um, you know, highlights the significance of equal opportunity and um, equity mm. in, in society. We need to be very careful about that. I mean, sometimes it sort of, 
it's it's sort of forgotten, but um, it 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 really underpins the attitude that we have today that we do hone in on disadvantaged groups and we sort of bring them up because if that is just just not being nice, and that actually is very good health management, yeah. and it also is very good and responsible social policy. I mean, we are in it together. And we are only as good as the weakest link that we have got in our system. Mm. So, but if we didn't have any of those concerns, and if we wanted to maximize the health benefit that we get per one dollar that we spend, that would still be the same thing to do. Yeah, the same, the same strategy. So, yeah, if nothing else, you know, um, quantifying the importance of socioeconomics in health um, is has been uh, not that it wasn't known, mm. but data science has really um, brought it forward, uh, sort of, you know, it took all the opinions, if you like, out of the, and, 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 and you know, uh, political dispositions out of the equation, and it, it has been able to present it as a sort of a politically neutral fact, and mm. it comes out very strong, definitely. Amazing, amazing. So the, the one other thing I was going to say, Philip, yes. all this wonderful work, and and uh, these amazingly powerful and useful algorithms mm-hmm. and mathematical techniques, they're only as good as the data that they can see, mm-hmm. right? So if we don't have proper data collection, we're in trouble. Um, or if we have got, um, how do I put it, uh, limited um, sort of confined data, again, it's a limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, New Zealanders, for example, just to show you, they collect data um, from their citizens, if you like, across all modes of interaction with services. So, you know, um, you know, they get it from health, they get it from education, mm-hmm. they get it from uh, sort of economics, the treasury, all of that. So they bring a complete picture and that essentially increases the power of everything that I mentioned. We are only now beginning to move to, towards that. Mm. And Clearly, I mean, we talk about the benefits of data science, and there are immense sort of benefits. But the one thing we haven't mentioned so far is sort of the risks and privacy. Yeah. Clearly, privacy is a major issue um, or potential issue, and it has to be taken very seriously. So um, as we increase the, the data collections and as we increase the, the potential um, scope of data science, we need to do it. We need to have the same... Um, extremely careful attitude to privacy so that you know we can raise the the um the capacity if you like without also raising risk so and you know you need a social license to do that um you know you've got to take society with you as we have seen with um uh, my health records and and you know some some years back um so yeah so there, there is that challenge so that's that's not Let's not have our listeners think that we're ignoring privacy. Great. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think that any any uh, and all of the uh, advances that data science can bring to healthcare, I think um, it's got two major um, stumbling parts or areas. Uh, one is definitely the privacy uh, yeah. side, and the the other one, which you also mentioned, is uh, the ethical. Um, implications and applications of yeah. of, um, um, of the work that we, we want to create a, a more a fairer world um, yes. 
that is more equitable and, and we yes. have that that option. Um, so I know I know that we're um, running out of time, which is uh, crazy because uh, this is amazing. But I do want to ask you one last question. Um, and this is uh, related to uh, well, the future and uh, the this idea you mentioned of the revolution that is is being you know introduced or, or made available as a result of, of data science and healthcare coming together in this way. Um, what what are you excited about of of the possibilities of what can be done? Um, what are you looking forward to uh, that that is that can be unlocked through this revolution into the future? Um, personalized personalized um, health services in, in the true sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Is, is is the excitement and it's possible right now. So um let's let's have a look at it from the individual's perspective, from you know the, from the citizen's perspective. They are born, they live, and unfortunately, fact of nature is we die, right? So there's that entire process. Um what I would love to see and what, what is evolving and what's already happening, what we are doing, is that um as the person lives their life, there's a sort of a life process and a progression throughout that process. Um, we are able to create insights about that person, if you like, risk algorithms throughout that at any given point enables us to understand the risk factors for that person mm-hmm. and enables us to intervene in such a way to reduce those risk factors. And not just for us, you know, acting on the patient, but we can use all of this information to empower the, the person because ultimately it's the person that does the caring for themselves. Mm-hmm. So. That so this is the um, I mean the creation of this insight and implementing so we can do it at a patient level and it's not just limited to health it can be limited it's applicable to the education system we can you know um, to how we run our finances and how we choose to spend our money on sort of in in a sort of a, a societal sense but going back to the patient imagine so that's the beauty at any given point. Uh, from the day they're born until the day they die, we can decide what we can understand, not decide, we can extract, if you like, um, the the risks that this person faces from a health perspective, and we can devise interventions to minimize those risks. So basically, we're optimizing quality of life for everyone throughout their life. That's the massive benefit. So this is from the patient perspective, from the care and health service perspective, Mm-hmm. Uh, provision perspective, we, uh, from the facilities perspective, if you like, we can do exactly the same. For every facility, if we know the population in the way that I described to you, we can pretty much understand what services will be required now and what services are most likely to be required five years from now. Mm-hmm. So optimization in um, resource creation, resource allocation, uh, provision of training to make sure we have got the right um, workforce um, across the board, all of this becomes possible. Now, we live in a world that is more and more powerful in some respects in terms of human now, but also uh, on a planet that is increasingly vulnerable. So this is precisely, this sort of insight that I've described to you, this sort of capability, this capacity, is precisely what we need to manage some of the you know, um, existential challenges that are coming in our way. How do we best manage our planet while also maximizing the quality of life for human beings and other life forms 
So this is like living, breathing mathematics and science integrated with human agency on the planet that makes all of this possible. So it's good to keep these things in mind, especially when there is unnecessary and absolutely destructive nonsense going on in the world. Yes. That a better world certainly is possible. And it's not dreaming. It is in everyday lived experience that we can make it happen. Amazing. Amazing. I love it. Yeltsin, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for your time, for all the work that you do, for sharing your, your insights, your perspectives. And I'm amazed. I'm so impressed. Thank, and you. thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for thank coming to the show. Thank you for all the insightful questions that made this an enjoyable 45 minutes. <laughs> thank you so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.